Welcome to a very special bonus episode of Matitsi Stories, a podcast by the Matitsi Museums exploring Matitsi area history through its people, places, and events. While recording interviews and content for season one, we realized we hadn't done justice to a couple of stories. One of those is women in the military. The contributions of women to military efforts in the United States date back to the country's formation. You may remember hearing about women disguising themselves as men to fight in both the American Revolution and the Civil War. In 1778, Deborah Sampson disguised herself as a man to fight in the Continental Army. Her real identity was discovered when she was wounded in combat and a doctor found she was female. She made history, however, when Congress recognized her service by granting her husband a widow's pension upon her death. In the Civil War, it's estimated that more than 400 women fought in both the Union and Confederate armies disguised as men. Keep in mind that throughout this time period, women served as nurses and support roles as well. It's during the Spanish-American War that the United States recognizes the need for highly trained nurses, and in 1901, the Nurse Corps is established. The newly formed corps is put to the test during World War I. You might remember Carol Byerly from the World War I episode. Byerly is a professor of history at the University of Colorado Boulder, and she joined us to talk about the influenza pandemic of World War I. During the course of our conversation, nursing during the Great War became a focal point. World War I is the war that demonstrated the value of female nurses. So um, until the Spanish-American War in 1918, there were, no, there were not female nurses, and it was men that took care. They're called stewards or orderlies, and men took care of each other because it was, women were not, it was not appropriate for women to see men um, naked or to know about bodily functions, and it was too violent and all that. So, but, um, but nursing had become a profession, and it just started being used in the army, and nurses were eager to serve their country and to see the world. And so we had um, about 20,000 nurses um, recruited by the American Red Cross in the army. In the, um, and about 10,000 of them went to, went, went to France and the rest were here at camps. And um, about, I think I'm um, about 103 women, uh, 100 women died um, nurses died in the war, and all but three died of influenza pneumonia. So, um, so they thrilling for them because they were useful. They were important. They were keeping people alive, and um, they were needed. And so they were in field hospitals. I have and nurses were um, being shelled. They were not having. They were having um, the lights go out, they were without blankets and resources. Um, so they were treating soldiers on the front and some of them are buried in the uh, World War I um, cemeteries in Europe. And I've seen those. Um, if you see a woman in a cemetery, American World War I cemetery, it's a nurse. And she most likely died of the flu and pneumonia. Um, nurses were also in the training camps. And I think I told you before, 
that um, African American women wanted to serve in the um, Army Nursing Corps, but they were uh, barred. It was they were told that it would be too difficult to set up um, separate housing for them because they couldn't live with white nurses. So they, in a time of segregation. So, um, but when the epidemic came, there was a nursing shortage. And so they did allow black women to come in um, to two camps to care for um, African-American soldiers who were sick. So they, they came in, I believe they're 18, nine in, in two camps, Camp Grant and another camp. And, um, and so they did it totally in the Jim Crow way um, in um, segregated circumstances. But it was very important because they got, they integrated the American nursing um, service and um, they showed that they were, um, could do it. So um, the, there were 30,000 or 32,000 um, doctors in the army um, medical department too. And so there was trouble in the civilian sector because the best, uh, some of the best doctors and nurses were taken into the military sector. And, and some of them were sent overseas, so they weren't even in the country. And so influenza required bringing people out of um, retirement or allowing medical students and nursing students to, to work in hospitals and to care for people. And then a lot of people were cared for at home. This was, it was professional. It was very professional by then, by then. Florence Nightingale, of course, as you know, was the um, progenitor of, of um, female nursing. And she argued that women make better nurses than men because they're more nurturing and more, um, and they serve, they're there to serve. And she carved out this profession in a brilliant way because the um, doctors were threatened by anybody who come in the sick room. And Florence Nightingale said, we are not here to challenge you. We are here to help you. And so the nurses came in as females, as women serving men, nurturing men and doing whatever the doctor said. So she said, you do what the doctor said, but the nurse is there for the patient. The nurse is there for the patient and the nurse is an observer. But the nurses were also trained in um, modern medicine. She, she died without ever believing in the germ theory. But um, she believed in cleanliness. She believed in cleanliness and she believed in nourishment and ventilation. She believed in ventilation. And so, and so instead of these fetid, dark hotel, um, rooms where men would be cared for in the Civil War, she um, wanted, it was called barracks system, where you, you may have seen these hospital beds and there's a window between each bed. And so have the air come through and have clean, starchy, uni white uniforms. I mean, they're the most inefficient things in the world, but white, clean, airy. But of course, that helped before antibiotics. It did help. And, um, and she had very good statistics. So that was, so women went to nursing school 
and um, you had to have a college degree and um, then you had training. And by now, I think you had to have been trained where there was a hospital. They did this for doctors. So they just had the increase in, in standards for medical training. Um, and if you know anything about the history of nursing, you know there's this competition between professional RNs and LPNs, licensed practical nurse. And, and now there's all these different um, levels of the um, nurse practitioner and everything. But some people said, well, I may not have a nursing degree, but I can nurse people. I can take care of them and feed them and everything. And the Army Nurse Corps said, no, you can't. We are professional nurses and you have to have graduated from a, um, a certified nursing school. So they resisted um, help from people who say, I'll come and take care of my son or whatever like that. And that was a standard throughout. Men were not allowed. They weren't allowed in the American Nursing Corps um, until the Vietnam War. And nurses were not a, allowed to be married until um, 1943 during World War II. They were like nuns. Nurses proved themselves. And nurses testified before the U.S. Congress in support of the suffrage bill. And the chief nurse went to Congress and said, my women, we nurses, we served our country and we deserve the vote. And so, as you know, women's service and, and work, volunteering, all these other things that they did, but the nurses testified and they had one of the best arguments really. They were tough enough to vote. You think the ballot box is tough. You ought to try the Western Front. During World War I, from the Tsetse, Lola Ellen Leckie served as a private in the U.S. Army. She is buried at the Willamette National Cemetery in Oregon for her service. The involvement of 35,000 women in the military during World War I, including Lola, sets the stage for their involvement a mere 22 years later in World War II. So my name is Lacey Opdyke. Uh, currently, I am the, or I guess one of the public history research interns at the National Women's History Museum. Women serving in World War II wasn't completely unprecedented at the time. There was actually a group of women known as the Hello Girls um, or the Signal Corps Female Telephone Operators Unit who served on the front lines in World War I. Um, the state of communications was so bad during World War I uh, World War One, that Pershing, uh, General Pershing actually issued a nationwide call for female switchboard operators to come and serve with the army. And these were basically the start of the Women's Army Corps later on in the Second World War. And these women were also the inspiration for the bill that started the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps. Uh, Representative Edith Norse Rogers uh, served as a volunteer in World War I, as a gray lady, and with the YMCA in London. And these women, the Hello Girls, when they came home, they were told that they were part of the army. They wore army uniforms, they swore army oaths, but they weren't given any benefits once they came home after World War I. They were basically just brushed off and said, sorry, no, like, you did your job and that's all you needed to do. So, 
witnessing this, um, Representative Rogers was like, no, we can't do this again. Women are extremely valuable. We can use their skills. We can use their knowledge in this upcoming war because everybody, you know, knew what was coming after Pearl Harbor. And she wanted to make sure that these women who served in the Second World War were protected, unlike the women who served in the First World War. Um, In fact, the women, the Hello Girls, didn't even get uh, recognition as veterans until the late 1970s, I want to say 1977, um, when most of them were gone. The Women's Army Corps was created as a way for women and their labor, their useful labor to come in and free a man to fight when we were having really bad manpower shortages um, early on and towards the middle of the war. So essentially men were doing jobs that women at the time were it was deemed at the time like appropriate for women to do. So the women came in and took over those jobs, for example, as clerks, typists, switchboard operators, things of that sort that were deemed more feminine work at the time. So the men could be used in more useful situations overseas. It was one of the earlier branches that were set up. So a lot of them, or I should say a lot of the guidelines used to set up the Women's Army Corps were also used to set up the other branches um, of women in the military, or I should say the other auxiliaries in the military. Um, However, they were a little bit unique because women of the Women's Army Corps were actually the only people, uh, or women I should say, who served overseas during the war with any of the women's auxiliaries. So they are kind of unique in that way, but they did serve as kind of a basis of setting up all the other branches. So one of my favorite um, groups to talk about is actually the forward echelon uh, or the WAC detachment of the forward echelon communication zone. And these women made up half of this unit and they served as mainly communications like switchboard operators and um, things of that sort. They were the first WAC unit to arrive overseas in Europe after D-Day. It was 38 days after D-Day and they landed on the beaches of Normandy, which I think is really amazing. Um, once they were there, they were de- they were attached to a group of men. That was mainly how the WAC served. They were a WAC detachment attached to various units doing whatever they needed to do overseas. And these women, again, worked as switchboard operators in communications. And they served just like the men did. They, they lived in tents. Um, there's instances of women, they talk about this group specifically, taking like cold showers and washing their hair with cold water that they kept in their helmets. Um, and washing their faces and that. And, you know, they tread through the mud, they did their job and it was really amazing. Um, And then the woman that I highlight in my exhibit on the National Women's History Museum website, Ethel LeBlanc Palma, she was a first lieutenant and she served in the Pacific Theater of Operations, which a lot of other WACs did. And she was a male censor and a male sorter So she arrived first in Sydney and she did a lot of work there. And then she moved over to New Guinea where she set up a entire mail sensor um, department sort of. And then right after the fighting sweeped through Manila, I mean, right after they sent her detachment over to Manila. Um, The wax there actually lived in housing that was under attack uh, by the Japanese. And they saw some really horrible things just like the men would have seen. And yeah, they were kind of everywhere. Uh, The first group of WAC 
WAAC to serve, um, actually served with General Eisenhower. He requested five officers to come over and serve as executive secretaries with him. And then he was so impressed with their work that he actually asked for a unit to come over. And the first unit, um, the first WAAC unit to serve overseas was the 149th Post Headquarters Company. Um, And they reported on January 27, 1943 to Eisenhower's headquarters um, in Algiers. It lasted, um, it was established in May of 1942, and then it went on all the way up until 1978. And in 1978, women were completely integrated into the regular army. Not completely as in they were allowed to serve like in combat roles and things of that sort, um, but it did last a pretty long time post-war. Um, in 1945 and onward, when the war was dwindling down, a lot of members of Congress and people at home were really just expecting uh, the WAC to be disbanded and the women to start flooding back home. Their role in the war was done. However, a lot of the generals um, really, really liked the WAC and they saw them as extremely useful. The WAC proved themselves time and time again. And so it was kind of wishy-washy throughout the end and only about 10,000 lasted in 1946. And then in January of 1948, Representative Margaret Chase Smith proposed the Women's Armed Services Integration Act. And this bill allowed um, women in general to serve as permanent regular members of the Army, the Navy, the Marine Corps, and the Air Force. Um, And this was passed in June of 1948 by President Truman. Um, So yeah, they continued to serve on up until 1978, um, the WAC specifically, until they were integrated in. During World War II, many women from Matizi served in a variety of roles. Gladys Windsor is involved in the Navy Waves, while Lavana Baldwin and Margaret Weedman serve in the Women's Army Corps. Ethel Stiles enters the Cadet Nursing Corps on March 13, 1944, and is educated at the Memorial Hospital of Sheridan County. By 1976, women are allowed admission into all service academies, meaning all military institutions. A year later, in September of 1977, women and men are integrated into the same basic training units. Today, women make up 16% of the total military force. In 2016, all combat roles were opened to women. Matizzi's women in military service includes Sherry Woodward, Emma Stevens, Elizabeth Hendry, Jenna Harris, Kelly Hammond, Kyleen Getterman, Kate Dimer, Deanna Brown, Vicki Anderson, Veronica Alamazan, and Becky Allen. If you know of more women veterans or would like to share a story with us, please contact the Matizzi Musics. Thank you for listening.